happy Mother's Day to the moms among us. Thank you so much for your sacrifice and your love. And then to those of you who this is a uniquely hard day for, happy day to you. We're glad that you're here. This is a weird tension that we live in in this, in this culture, right, where uh, we create kind of hallmark holidays, and then people have expectations of how churches respond to hallmark holidays. And I just want to say, moms, we love you. We appreciate you. Those of you who this day brings extra baggage and hurt and harm for you, we see you and we love you. We have so many different people in our church family, and we're glad to be a diverse church family with people all over the spectrum of life. And so uh, just glad that you are here this morning. Uh, like, like Grant said, my name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. I, I, do, I, I preach primarily, but we do have additional preachers as well. Matt Fry preached two weeks ago, our church planting resident. Last Sunday, Vashek Anders from Czech Republic preached. He's preaching at another partner church of ours, Trinity City Church in St. Paul this morning. And I've had the pleasure of hanging out with Vashek a bunch this week, and just an amazing guy, and his wife, Lita, and their kids, Kuba and Anna, they're great people, and I'm so excited that you are a giving church, that we're able to build partnerships with people around the world. So thank you for being who you are. Uh, I, I think I'm going to pray again to kind of reset all of my rambling, announcement-y type of stuff, and then let's get into the Word. We're going to be in John chapter 9 this morning, so if you have a Bible, you can open that up. John chapter 9. If you uh, don't have a Bible, grab a pew Bible. It's on page 895 in the pew Bible. Let me pray. Jesus, we want to hear from you this morning. We want to see you this morning. I thank you that as we interact with one another, that as we sing songs together, that we are hearing from you, that we are interacting with you. Lord, our experience with you doesn't begin when the music starts or when the sermon starts, and it doesn't end when the music stops or when the sermon stops. So Lord, I pray that all that we do here this morning in this building would help us to experience you together. And then as we go out from here, I pray that your Holy Spirit, which is in us and guiding us and transforming us, would help all that we do to be in experience with you. But Lord, we get lost in our own heads, we get lost in our own circumstances, we get lost with our own opinions, and we forget sometimes who you are and what you're doing. And so I just pray that we would be reminded this morning as we look to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I was 20, I finished tech school. I went to school to be an electrician, and I'm not wired to do that, so I didn't become an electrician. Yeah, I'm a dad, okay. And I transferred to a college named Crown College, and uh, so I was, I was in my third year of college, but I had to do some like freshman-level classes, and so I had to do a speech class, and this counted for credit, so I was like, I'm not a big studious guy. I was like, give me the easiest classes, give me the credit. So I can prove that I did college because people say you need to do college if you want to be a successful adult. So just get me through this. So one of those classes was speech class. So I'm in speech class. I'm 20 and I was working part-time building houses. So I would go to school a couple days a week and then I would try to cram all my classes in and then I would go build houses. So I would like show up to class with like grungy construction work. I'm also terrible at construction, so don't ask me to do anything. Uh, but people paid me to like sweep behind their actual work. And so I would do that. So I'm in all my grungy clothes getting ready to go to work. And I'm in this freshman class. And remember, I'm like third year of college. So I think that I'm mature, right? More mature than these freshman kids just coming in. And in this speech class was this girl who would come 
to class in at eight in the morning, wearing high heels, drinking coffee, and just like chatting it up. And she's 18. She's a true freshman. And I just had so many opinions about this girl. I was like, she is so full of herself. She thinks she's so mature. Look at her drinking her coffee and wearing high heels. It's eight in the morning. Like I'm wearing work clothes so I can go to work. All the other college students are wearing sweatpants so they can go back to bed. Why is she in high heels? And, 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 and what's wrong with this girl? I was kind of a little bit judgmental. I had built all these opinions about who this person was. And then I got to know Brittany. <laughs> and I experienced life with Brittany. My wife, Brittany. And my experience with Brittany was far different than the opinions I had built about Brittany by kind of a judgmental, kind of hands-off, like passing interactions with her, right? And, and we probably all have similar experiences, whether it's with a person or whether it's with like a thing. Like we, we, we have opinions about people or about things when we just kind of treat them at a distance, when we experience them at a distance, and then the more that we get to know somebody or the more that we get to use a certain thing, the more experience that we have, oftentimes that opinion shifts and changes and it's molded. See, the reality is experiences with Jesus always transform us more than our opinions about Jesus. Experiences with Jesus always transform us more than our opinions about Jesus. In our text today, John chapter 9, we're going to see all of these people that have opinions about Jesus. And they had some experiences with him. But in this text, we see a man who had a unique, powerful, intimate experience with Jesus, and it transformed his life forever. Because of the principle is true. Experiences with someone is more transformative than your opinions about somebody. And so this morning, we're going to look at this text, and, and we're going to experience Jesus. As we see all these other people who experienced Jesus and, and, and had opinions about him and built opinions about him, right? And, and I know some of you skeptical people are like, well, you just get a new opinion about somebody if you have an experience. Correct. But you get a more well-rounded opinion, a, a less ignorant opinion when you're around someone. And so this morning, I want us to see that. And, and, and as we get into John 9, I want to just ask you this question. Have you been experiencing life with Jesus? Or have you been blinded by opinions about Jesus? Have you been experiencing life with Jesus for yourself in community? Or have you been blinded by the many, many, many religious and irreligious opinions about Jesus? said this before, I'm going to say it again. Maybe what you need to do this week is pause your podcast, put down your book, and get alone with God to experience him. We're going to see what experience with Jesus looks like this morning as we go through this text. Usually I have you stand and I read through the whole thing. It's a long text, so we're going to go through it kind of section by section this morning as we look at our passage. Look at verses 1 through 7 as we get started this morning. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This is right after the Feast of Tabernacles. It, the Feast of Tabernacles may still be going on. It's kind of wrapping up. And if you remember in John chapter 6, 7, and 8, we kind of talked about the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus has said, I'm the light of the world. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. And, and he's here still in Jerusalem and kind of wrapping up this festival. And here's what happens. It says, as he, being Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Jesus answered, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming. When no one can work, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with his muddy saliva spit. It doesn't say that, but that's what happened, right? With the mud. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seen. This is a beautiful passage. Like what an amazing miracle. Jesus gave sight to a man born blind. As we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, and specifically in Jesus' miracles, he's often taking physical realities, and he's doing a miracle, and Jesus actually wants to bring healing and wholeness and wellness to his people. And so oftentimes we see Jesus bringing, bringing healing to somebody and making them whole, making them well, but he's always using these things to point to a deeper spiritual reality. He's always using this to point us to something eternal, not just temporary. And so while he gives sight to this blind man, what he's doing is he's trying to help his followers, his disciples, to see that without him, we are all spiritually blind and we need his touch to see. We need his light to shine into the darkness. And we're going to see that as we go. But what I want to do for a moment here is just deal with this idea of suffering, right? The, the disciples, they have an opinion. They have a perspective. They have a question for Jesus. Now, our opinions, our perspectives, our questions are important. I don't want you to hear me this morning saying that we shouldn't ask questions, that we shouldn't wrestle with opinions and think through opinions, or that we shouldn't develop perspective. We should, but my concern for us as a church is sometimes we get trapped in our questions, our opinions, and our perspectives, and we miss the life-transforming experience with Jesus. And so I want to deal with some of these questions, opinions, perspectives this morning and, and consider what they reveal about us, but then ultimately point us to what it looks like to have an experience with Jesus. So here's the question the disciples have. Verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And isn't this a reality that you and I live in? This, this question about suffering, sin, and suffering. How does this work? See, sometimes suffering is the result of specific sin. And in their tradition, in their culture, they believe that most suffering could be tied directly to a specific sin. And so they're asking Jesus about that. Sometimes suffering is the result of general sin. Right, like Genesis 3, the fall and all things are hard and suffer. The Bible tells us that the earth groans, that the earth is hard to work, that, that, that when you try to plant and till, that famines come and floods come and, and, and there's suffering. And so a reality for us to keep in mind is that all suffering in general is a result of the fall. All suffering is a direct result of sin in one way or another. And sometimes, the Bible will actually teach us that sometimes specific suffering is the result or the consequence of a specific sin. So we all know that like certain sins have certain consequences, right? And certain good decisions have certain good consequences. That's just life. But then when it comes to suffering that's out of our control, sometimes like a sickness, a disease, it might actually be the result of a specific sin. However, that's not always the case. 
And so we need to keep this tension in mind, right? I love what D.A. Carson says about this in his commentary on the book of John, a New Testament scholar. I think it's really helpful. He says, Once we move from generalizing statements about the origin of the human's race maladies to tight connections between the sins and the sufferings of an individual, we go on, we go beyond the biblical evidence, both Old and New Testament. So he's saying there's not biblical evidence for us to be able to look at a specific disease or suffering and say that's because of this sin or that sin. Sometimes it is, but that's God to decide. Sometimes it's just a result of general sin and sin that has just broken humanity. He says that a specific illness or experience of suffering can be the direct consequence of sin, few would deny. Sometimes that is the case. That it is invariably so, numerous biblical texts flatly deny. In the instance of John 9, the disciples presuppose the tightest possible connection. This specific individual's suffering is tied to a specific sin in their minds. Although Jesus does not disavow the universal connection between sin and suffering, he completely disavows a universalizing of this particular connection. In this instance, Jesus insists that neither this man nor his parents sinned, rather this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And so here's the like application for us. When you are going through suffering and when people you know and love are going through suffering, refrain from trying to make connections. Let the Holy Spirit do his work of revealing, and if there is a specific connection to some type of sin, like work through that, pray through that, repent of that. But we need to be very careful as we address suffering and just know that there's a mystery here. And the point of this particular passage and this miracle, Jesus answers this question for them. They have this opinion, this perspective that they're wondering about. And Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned, in verse 3, or, that his, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Something else is going on here. Jesus is about to heal this man's sight so that the work of God might be displayed in and through him. That leaves us with the question of like, well, isn't it always better than for God to heal? Oh, and it sure seems that way. Some of you are in the midst of deep suffering right now, and you're pleading with God to bring healing. I've been there. And sometimes healing comes, and often in our experience, physical healing doesn't come. And we wrestle with that, and we wonder about that. And this passage isn't getting deep into the weeds there, so I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on that this morning. But I just want you to know that this is the reality of the text and the tensions that are happening here, and you are not alone in that wrestling. Why is there suffering? Is it a result of sin? What does healing look like? Why does Jesus heal the man born blind, but he won't heal my disease or my malady? And... and, Well, just pause there. Keeping in mind, just in the biblical perspective and and reality, is that suffering, whatever the cause, whatever the root is for it in our life, it always gives us an opportunity for growth and to see the glory and the power of God, whether through its healing or whether if it's through perseverance. 
The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 9, he says, uh, he's talking about something being given him. He says, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he had received a ton of revelations from God. And people who received a ton of revelations from God sometimes get conceited because they're like, well, I heard from God and you didn't, therefore I'm gonna use my power and my authority and I'm gonna spiritually abuse you because I heard from God. And Paul, to his credit here, he said, I could be conceited because of God's revelation. And God intervened to keep me from being conceited. He said, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. When we read passages like John 9 and we see a healing, we ought to want that healing for us. And and we ought to think that I think the power and the glory of God would be so well displayed in a physical healing of this person that I'm praying for. But when we don't experience a physical healing, we have to remember passages like this. That God in his His grace and his goodness, he is doing something that we may not understand. Like we sang this morning in that first song, I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. In the midst of suffering, in the journey of suffering, it's hard to understand what God is doing and and why he's healing someone and why he's not healing here. It's just hard to make sense of it in the moment. But as we continue to walk with Jesus and we persevere, it usually makes more sense in the rearview mirror. And we can cling to this reality that we don't know what God is doing in this present moment, but we know what he's done. We have story after story after story and experience after experience after experience. And sometimes he, in his grace, he gives us a certain level of suffering to keep us dependent on him and humble. We don't know what Paul's issue was. Was it depression? Was it anxiety? Was it, was it something else? Maybe. We don't, we don't know. It doesn't tell us. Just that God specifically sent something to keep him humble. Another reality that we have to wrestle with as a church family is this passage in Romans 9, 20 through 21. And there's a lot of surrounding text here. This is a big conversation that we don't have time to get into this morning. But here's what the text says. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is modeled say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So again, big conversation here, a lot of nuance, a lot of tensions in Romans 8, 9, 10, 11, kind of sweeping through that section that we don't have time to get into. But I want to just remind us as a church family that God is sovereign and we are not. Our view, our perspective, our opinions about God and what God might be doing in any given situation are incomplete. We are the clay. He is the potter. And this passage is a great reminder for me that sometimes I just need to shut my mouth and say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. I don't know why you made me this way. Why do I have my weaknesses and shortcomings and fallen, fallenness and, and, and why can't I conquer this and, and why, why? And sometimes it's good to ask those questions and to dig and to probe and to understand the depths of our sin. But also at some point we just say, who am I to question God? Maybe I need to pause and, and let God be God and I need to surrender and submit my life to him and his plan and his ways 
If this seems cruel, it's probably because we live in a culture that preaches that we deserve to be happy and healthy and that we can be or we should be the creators of our own destiny. And this just isn't just the culture out there. It's many of our churches. Like we preach, we need to be happy and healthy and whole and the way to get there is to really play God in our own life. Forgetting that so many of the people in the New Testament, the heroes of the faith, were martyred for following Jesus. They didn't live happy, healthy, whole lives where they created their own destiny. They were killed and persecuted and mocked and lived in poverty and despair because of their association to Jesus. And so as we interact with suffering, we just need to keep these things in mind. Oftentimes, when I'm sitting with people in suffering, in myself, what I have to remind myself when I'm sitting with suffering, I don't know. I don't understand all of what is going on in the heavenly realms. But I trust that God is good. And I need others to remind me that God is good. And I need to keep walking with God and persevere and persevere and persevere. And so that's a little bit about suffering, but what I don't want to miss here in this text is the amazing beauty that Jesus healed this man born blind, right? Like, I don't, I don't want to spend this morning making excuses for why Jesus doesn't heal those who are suffering in our lives, and sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't, that's a big conversation, but I don't want to get trapped in the opinions and the perspectives about suffering. I want to look at the experience of the man who was healed. So pick it up with me again in verse 6. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And he went and washed and came back seeing. Amen? Jesus has power to heal. Jesus has power to heal. Amen. Thank you, Roman. This is who Jesus is. And this man born blind has this experience with Jesus that transforms his life, which I want to go on to talk about. And we're going we're gonna to see some more opinions and perspectives about Jesus as we go. Let's keep going. Verse 8. The neighbors, so some people who were there and present and living near this man born blind, they, they said... Uh, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar, right? So, so this man has a, has a he's, he's handicapped, he's without sight. And oftentimes, especially in this culture, but even in our culture, like those who are born with, with disabilities or, or, or different abilities or, you know, things that kind of hold them back from functioning fully in society the way that society is set up, like they often end up in positions of need. They're dependent. Imagine living life Without sight, you are so dependent on other people in a different way than those who have sight. And so this man is begging. He's, he's known, right? He's like the guy who's always at that street corner. He's sitting there blind, begging, asking for money, asking for help. And some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. It's like, okay, so this guy can see. We knew that beggar who used to sit there and can't, sit there and can't see, and they look like each other. They're trying to figure out, is it actually him or is it not? He kept saying, I am the man. And the people had no, like, they didn't have a category for this miracle. They're like, it can't be him. Come on. Nobody's ever been healed who has been 
born blind. He's like, guys, it is me. I can see it. I am the one who was sitting there. So they said to him, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered them, the man called Jesus. And I love, this is all he knows about Jesus at this point. He doesn't have deep theological categories. He's not well-studied in the scriptures. Remember, this guy can't read. He's likely illiterate. He's, you know, he's dependent. He doesn't know much. He says, the man called Jesus. Made mud. By the way, he made the mud by hawking a loogie, putting it in the ground, stirring it up, putting it on my eyes. Why? We don't know. Is Jesus using this imagery of like from the dust of the ground? Is this a recreation? I tend to think so. We don't really know. It's a funny story. How then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which, by the way, is where the pool came during the Feast of Tabernacles, where the water came from at the pouring out of the ceremony when Jesus says, I am the living water. Beautiful picture. Go down into that water that I use as imagery about how I would give you eternal thirst, uh, eternal quenching of your thirst. He says, go down. He anointed my eyes, said, go down to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Jesus walked off. He healed me. I know this man named Jesus. He spit, made mud, put it in my eyes, told me to go wash. I can see. And then he left. That's where we're at with this man. And the, and the neighbors are like, just wrestling with it, a questioning, right? They're curious. How did this happen? Are you the man? Let's get some proof. And we continue through the story. Next, we run into the Pharisees and the man's parents and the man born blind. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, which if you've been with us for the Gospel of John, you know that that's like a trigger for the Pharisees. He did something good on the Sabbath because he's breaking their laws their traditions, their rules. So that's part of the tension that's going on here. Part of the pharisaical opinion or perspective about God is that he needs to operate according to their rules because they've set up their rules in order to honor God. Think about that. Sometimes we set up rules and traditions that we think are honoring to God and they become an obstacle that keep people from experiencing God. And so the Pharisees, they're, they're, they're angry that Jesus yet did another miracle on the Sabbath. Pick it up in verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eye and I washed and I see. Simple. Just take it at face value. This is what happened. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Speaking about Jesus. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? They're associating Jesus just as a, as a sinner, another one of us. And there was division among them. Too many opinions and perspectives usually create division. Just keep that in mind. Again, opinions and perspectives have their place. They matter. But when we get trapped in our opinions, our perspectives, our religion, our traditions, there's often division as a result. We see that right here in the text. So they said again, verse 17, to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. This man knows, he, he's, he's likely a Jew, he's in Jerusalem, he's grown up with the story of the Jews, he's heard of the prophets of old. Remember, he can't see, he hasn't read, but he's, he's learned the oral tradition. 
And so he, he, he assumes, well, this man has power. In the Old Testament, those with power were prophets. He must be a prophet. And the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them. I just fascinated. The neighbors were kind of like, is it him? Is it not him? He's like, it's me, it's me, it's me. And then the Pharisees, they're like, it's still not him. This is like, Jesus is tricking us. This is some kind of like fake healing where he like, you know, he like put the same clothes on the man who was blind and right, like he duped us all. And so they go to the parents of this man born blind, verse 20, and his parents answered. Uh, let's see, no, pick it up in verse 17, uh, 19. And they asked him, is this your son? So they go to the parents of the man born blind, and they say, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son, that he has been born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Nice parents, way to have your kids back, right? They're like, uh, yeah, that's our kid. We don't know what happened to him. Just ask him yourself. In one way, that might be honoring, but actually what you'll see here is that they're actually trying to get out of getting in trouble with the religious leaders. Verse 22 says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, ask, he is of age. Now, one reminder, when it says the Jews in the Gospel of John, it's not talking about all Jews, right? Jesus is a Jew, the one doing the healing. The man who received his sight is likely a Jew. Many of his disciples, all of his early disciples are Jews. This term Jews here is about the religious leaders, the religious institution, those who are using the Jewish religion to hurt and oppress people. And these people know, the parents know, well, they've already made this verdict that if anyone confesses this man, Jesus of Nazareth, to be the Messiah, the Christ, they'll get kicked out of the synagogue. And they don't want to get kicked out of the synagogue because they'll lose their social status, their standing, their place of worship, their cultural identity. And so they just kind of throw their kid under the bus. You tell them what happened to you, son. And so for a second time, they called the man, verse 24, who had been born blind. And they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, speaking of Jesus. He answered, I love the man's answer. Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. You see the simplicity of his faith there? How his experience with and of Jesus transformed him? He doesn't know everything. He knows very little. But he's not caught up in opinions and perspectives. He's not caught up in the social, cultural, religious division around Jesus. He says, I had an experience with this man. That's what I know. I don't know his origin. I don't know his nature. I don't know if he's God and man. I don't know if he has a sin nature or a perfect nature. I don't know. I know that he touched me and now I see. They said to him, verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, right? You feel it. It's like, come on. How many times does this guy have to say, yes, I am he, and here's what he did. I have told you already, and you will not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? See, this little evangelist trying to pull in the Pharisees, the religious leaders, like, why do you keep asking these stupid questions? Are you interested in Jesus? You want to come with? 
and they reviled him. No, they don't, they don't want to surrender to Jesus. They don't want to submit to Jesus. They don't want to trust anyone else. They want to trust their laws, their ways, their traditions, their power. And they reviled him, I'm in verse 28, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. This Verse 2 has a lot of discussion that needs to be wrapped up into it, which we don't have time for this morning. So I'll keep moving on. Verse 32. Never since the beginning has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you teach us, and they cast him out. So remember, the, the, the parents weren't willing to answer because they didn't want to be cast out of the synagogue. And, and the man answered for the Pharisees yet again what happened, and they cast him out of the synagogue. He's not trapped in opinions and perspectives and traditions and religious rule and religious law and religious dogma and doctrine about all the details of who Jesus is and who he might be and how all this stuff fits together. He is transformed by a personal experience with Jesus, a healing touch of Jesus. And he's cast out of the religious institution because of it. And, and then as we close down this morning, let's see how this wraps up. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they cast him out and having found him. Just pause right there and hear that. See the heart of Jesus here. Jesus heard that they cast him out. Some of you have been cast out of churches and groups because of something you've done or something that you disagreed with or maybe right or wrong. I don't know. That's complicated. Look at what Jesus does to the person who had been cast out, who had been ousted by the religious institution and tradition and law and rule. He goes and he finds him. Not only does Jesus heal this man's sight, but when this man is ostracized and oppressed by those with power, Jesus seeks him out. And he says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man, which is a term Jesus has already used in the Gospel of John to refer to himself. And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Remember, all the man knows, this man named Jesus healed me. And now this man named Jesus, he hasn't connected the dots yet, came to find me. There's this compassionate man who when I got kicked out of the synagogue, he came and he asked me if I believe in the Son of Man. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, verse 37, you have seen him. What an amazing phrase. You've seen him. You have fresh sight. You've laid eyes upon the Savior. And it is he who is speaking to you. For the first time, the man's sight and ears are working together, and he's able to see Jesus. And he said, Lord, I believe, I have faith, I trust, and he worshiped him. He didn't start questioning, he didn't start going into perspectives, he didn't start trying to connect all the dots and get his doctrine in order and try to, try to like throw the religious institution that had kicked him out under the bus, right? Sometimes we do that. What does he do? 
He has faith in Jesus and he worships him. That ought to be our response when we experience Jesus. Faith and worship, faith and worship. And again, please don't hear me saying that there's never a time to doubt or or there is doubt that happens or, or to think about opinions and perspectives and questions and to wrestle with that. But a true experience with Jesus ought to lead us to faith and worship simplicity, right? This man has an intimate interaction with Jesus. Jesus is spit all up in his eye. That's intimacy. He's healed, and then in simplicity, he says, I believe, and I will worship. Jesus said to him, for judgment I have come into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who may see become blind. And here it's just kind of a jab at the religious institution, the pharisaical way of thinking that we can in our own power see Jesus and follow Jesus and do the works of Jesus. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and they said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. He's getting to this reality of spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. It's not just about physical healing. It's about this deep internal spiritual transformation which happens through experiences, multiple ongoing experiences with Jesus, being touched by Jesus, being healed by Jesus, or continuing to walk with Jesus. And this man, instantly upon being healed, he wasn't saved. He didn't know who Jesus was. It, you know, he kept being thrown around by the religious institution. But then when Jesus sought him out in verse 35, after he had been cast out of the synagogue, he says, do you believe? And he says, yes, I believe. And he worshiped. And so the invitation for us this morning, church family, is to come back to Jesus and to worship. It, it, it's to ask this question honestly of ourselves, have you been experiencing life with Jesus or have you been blinded by opinions about Jesus? And regardless of what your answer is to that, the invitation here is for all of us to come to Jesus. And if you're the one who's wandering, if you're lost, if you're confused, if you feel spiritually blind, look at Jesus coming to the man, seeking him out. He's been hurt by religion. Amazing healing from God, hurt by religion. Jesus goes to him and produces faith in him. In a similar manner, Jesus comes to each one of us this morning in order to produce faith. He would ask you the question, do you believe in me? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe that I am the way, the truth, and the life? And our response ought to be, I believe, and we should worship. And if you're not there this morning, hang around, keep asking questions, and, ex- and, and eventually, I pray and hope that you will experience God personally and powerfully. That might be this morning for the very first time. I'm going to pray. And then you're welcome to come to the communion stations. There are two in the back and two in the front. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have had experience with Jesus, this is one of those. We come to the table being reminded that he gave his body In our place, on our behalf, he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And this is a chance and an opportunity for us to have another experience with the person of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are desperate to experience you. Lord, some of us in this room want another experience. We've already had them, but we 
we need to be woken up and reminded. Lord, others have maybe never had a true, genuine experience of you. Lord, I pray that you would give that to them here and now. Lord, we all have questions, doubts, perspectives, opinions. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't get lost in them. I pray that we wouldn't be blinded by them. But I pray now, desperately asking that even here in this moment, we would experience the living, resurrected God. For your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name.